0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 318, Athelred, Chaos is a Ladder. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Melissa, Christy, and Cicely for signing up already. By 984, the Regency Council had been broken, and a new inner circle of nobles had been elevated. And this development was accompanied by a rapid series of changes at the highest levels of the kingdom. And as a result of this, the political rivals of this new council were rapidly losing power, with titles and even lands of wealthy dynasties being systematically funneled towards the king. And no one was safe during this surge of political consolidation, Even the powerful elderman of Mercia had found himself losing his title, being exiled on charges of treason. King Athelred and his new council had moved quickly to break the power structures that had long dominated English life. And in the process, he was becoming phenomenally wealthy. And in turn, Athelred did what a king was expected to do in this situation. After all, a king is a giver of rings. And so he began to share out portions of the lands and the vacated titles that he had seized. And he was giving them to people that he favored, to people who would be loyal to him. But just two years into this scheme, we have an odd entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Quote, 986, in this year, the king laid waste to the diocese of Rochester, end quote. Now, Rochester was a powerful bishopric located in Kent. And Kent was a region that had been closely tied to Wessex since at least the days of Alfred's own grandfather. This connection had grown so strong over the generations that by the time of Alfred, those two regions were often being referred to collectively as Greater Wessex. So Rochester wasn't a rival like Northumbria. It wasn't even rebellious like Mercia or East Anglia. And consequently, this entry in the chronicle is a bit like writing in your diary that you lit your back porch on fire. King Athelred was ravaging lands in a region that should have been at the heart of his own authority. How did that happen? It begins with the changes in how eldermancies were handled. One of the most dramatic changes was that they stopped respecting the tradition that the eldest son inherited the title of elderman from his father. Now, on its face, this change isn't necessarily a terrible policy. The title of elderman was one of the most powerful titles in England. The influence and authority that they could wield was incredible. And for generations, those titles have been passing down through right of inheritance. Now, to be fair, there was a certain logic to this. By passing these possessions down generationally, there was a lot of institutional knowledge that could be passed on, at least typically. So when an inheritance went well, that meant that the eldermency would be filled by an individual who had been trained from birth for that role, and who was already intimately familiar with the Shire over which he was going to rule. But a very good argument can be made that such an important position shouldn't be treated as an inheritance. And chief among them is the fact that just because a father was good at a job, doesn't mean that his son will be. Case in point, I'm a terrible engineer. Furthermore, power has a tendency to beget more power, and by allowing certain families to have an exclusive hold on the Eldermancies, they began to acquire power sufficient to politically threaten the crown. Having such powerful rivals in your court, each with their own furred that they could call on, might make it hard for a monarch to uphold his oath to keep the kingdom in peace. It had civil war written all over it. But... That danger could be lessened if those positions were taken from the powerful dynasties and were instead given to lesser dynasties who didn't pose as much of a threat. And that appears to have been the operating logic that Athelred and his council were following. But just because you've taken down a flawed system doesn't mean that you've automatically made things better. You need to actually replace it with a better system if you want to make progress. And that is not what King Athelred did he went for cronyism. So instead of eldomancies transferring from father to son, that title was now just transferring to anyone who happened to be a friend or ally of the king. And there was no guarantee at all that these new title holders were the best candidates for the job. And actually, it's likely they would have been at a significant disadvantage. I mean, Having not been raised in an elderman's household, they would have been unfamiliar with many of the tasks that were necessary and were expected to be carried out by anyone holding that title. Furthermore, many of these new appointees were not necessarily from the lands which they now held power over, which meant that they wouldn't know the land nor the people over which they were ruling. And that would have presented an obvious and immediate problem for all involved. Assuming, of course, that they actually wanted to do a good job. But it's not entirely clear that these new eldermen particularly cared about how good they were at ruling. Instead, many of them appear to have been focused more upon reaping rewards as quickly as possible. And this is the situation that existed in the 980s. With the king and his new circle of favorites using their newfound power to dislodge the old power structure. And then using that process to enrich themselves with wild abandon. Now, from a certain angle, it's hard to blame this new elite for jumping at this opportunity and enriching themselves. As we've discussed in the past, the power structures of England have solidified over the centuries. Power centralized on the island. And as a result, almost all levels of society experienced downward social pressure. Children were doing worse than their parents, year after year, almost entirely across the board. And that's not because these children were blowing their cash on fancy fig toast or mead brunching. This decline was inevitable as the very economic structure that underpinned English life made advancement nearly impossible. Moreover, it made losing ground a near certainty. But all that had changed. If you could get close enough to this young king, you had a chance to shortcut that brutal feedback loop that the dynastic grip on power had created. And suddenly, courtiers could actually get on top. And it was unlikely that a chance like this would ever come again. So I totally get why Alderman Elfridge of Hampshire and others were swarming in, trying to profit from the king's good graces. And to be honest, as far as get-rich-quick schemes go, flattering the king until he gives you lands and titles wasn't a bad one. But it was a terrible governing strategy. By taking eldermancies from the dynasties who were familiar with them and handing them out to his friends, Athelred was placing the kingdom at risk of having incompetent sycophants holding positions of incredible power. Nepotism and popularity might work out fine when you're trying to work out something like who should come to your birthday party. But that's because birthday parties don't have to organize a coastal defense against Vikings. At least not usually. But if you're trying to run a nation handing out strategic administrative roles to your buddies as if they were gifts is a really bad basis for governance. And it's especially bad for a nation in crisis. And England had slipped into a crisis. Moreover, it was also just bad politics. Doing this pretty much guaranteed to make Athelred a lot of enemies. The dynasties that had just been disinherited suddenly had a real beef with them. Moreover, this wasn't exactly an equal redistribution. There were the select few who were favored by the king, but then there was every other lesser dynasty who had just been passed up. So imagine yourself as an enterprising minor noble who got into court, and you've been dutifully serving King Athelred for several years, tending to his every need. And then... He passes you over and gives lands and titles to some other suck-up. How annoyed would you be? And that isn't just a hypothetical. The charters and records of the king's movements reveal that Athelred likely knew how many enemies he was making, because the king traveled a great deal, and he met with his councils regularly, which of course he was. That was expected and required of an Anglo-Saxon king. But... From these records, it's also quite clear that he never strayed far from his southern power base. Athelred worked in friendly territory, exclusively. In fact, we are aware of 25 meetings of the Witan during the reign of Athelred. 25 Witanagamots. And of those 25 great councils, only one was held north of Oxfordshire. And Oxford isn't exactly northern. In fact, It's just across the border from the Old Kingdom of Wessex. And still, only one Wetanikamot was north of there. Every other Wetanikamot, meaning 24 out of the 25, was held deep in the south, either directly in Wessex or in territories very close to Wessex. And while it certainly would have been a morale boost to stay in friendly territories, essentially moving from rally to rally of friendly supporters, Athelred's absence from the north and the Midlands, and East Anglia, well, it would have started to have a negative impact on his power. To govern, a king needs to be seen. Court was a physical presence, and rule was very much a tangible thing. And yet Athelred was AWOL for large portions of his kingdom. And effectively, this means that the nobles and the bishops who were governing over those regions were ruling for him. The king might have been setting policies through his law codes, but it would be the powerful nobles of each region who would actually determine how those lands would be administered. And that means, to the people actually living on the land, and more importantly, the wealthy nobility who held those lands, the face of power was the face of the bishops and the local upper nobility. It wasn't the face of the king. So this constrained movement of the court, as revealed in the record, tells us that the king was likely uncomfortable and likely unpopular outside of his immediate home territory. And it also indicates that he had very limited real authority outside of the south. So, we have a young, inexperienced, and politically weakened king who rose to power in dubious circumstances. And faced with this precarious position, he had made moves to consolidate power to an inner circle of trusted friends, which isn't that surprising or innately dangerous. But the manner in which he was going about it was making him a significant number of enemies. And rather than building alliances with the political structures in Mercia, East Anglia, and Northumbria, the king was politically abandoning those territories. And as a result, this made him ever more reliant on the southern nobility. And overall, he appears to have put his energies into a very small clique within that southern nobility essentially placing all his eggs in one basket, which was kind of a dumb move because if he wanted to rule, he needed support. A king without the support of powerful individuals isn't likely to be a king for very long. So that meant by focusing on this small group so hard, he really, really needed to keep these people happy, which brings us back to 986, the year that Athelred set his back porch on fire. And thankfully for us, Solcard of Westminster provides us an account that's much more detailed than that in the Chronicle. In his writing, Solcard tells us that Athelred received a visit from one of his favored retainers. It turns out that there was an estate in Rochester that this retainer fancied. It was well situated, it had a sizable income from its supporting villages, it just checked all the boxes, and I bet it even had a walk-in closet just off the master suite. And who doesn't love walk-in closets? But the point here is that this estate was a must have. And if you can't ask the king for your dream home, then what was the point of being a king's retainer? So he went to Athelred and said, Athelred, buddy, these last two years have been some of the best in my life. I love you, I love the kingdom, I love flawlessly carrying out every task you ask of me. I like it so much I do it for free. That's how much I love you. You are an incredible leader. And on an unrelated note, I've heard about this estate in Kent. Any chance I can have it? And for Athelred, this was probably a pretty normal experience, because what the retainer was asking for was quite common. And to be clear, giving lands and titles to your loyal followers was a common thing for many kings during this era. It was kind of part of the job. And actually, even though the lands that were asked for were actually part of the bishopric of Rochester, that wasn't all that unusual either. The truth is that granting church lands had a long history among the Anglo-Saxons. And the House of Wessex, in particular, was well known for granting church lands to friends of the crown. Or, you know, to itself. So what the retainer was asking for wasn't all that weird. Furthermore, like we've been talking about, the king was in a politically hairy position, so he needed support. And, just based on his behavior elsewhere in the record, it seems like he was inclined to give his friends what they wanted— So all the stars were aligned here and Athelred granted the request. A short while later, the Thane gathered up his family, his staff, and whatever other supporters he had, and he made the trek out to his new manor. And the estate was everything he hoped it would be. Just a stunning place, a pastoral paradise. And as a bonus, it was fully furnished. Things were really turning out well here. Meanwhile, Bishop Alfstan of Rochester was out taking care of his duties. You know, blessing people, saying sage things like, hmm, let me pray on that. And, you know, doing whatever else bishops tend to do during the day. But eventually, he returned to his manor. And imagine his shock when he discovered a bunch of random punks partying in his hall. You see, here's the thing about King Athelred apparently, he wasn't a details guy. Because he doesn't seem to have noticed that the estate in Rochester wasn't his to give away. And to be fair, I can totally understand where the confusion might have happened. The king and his council have been grabbing all kinds of lands lately. Properties have been coming into the possession of the crown at an incredible pace. So maybe they just assumed that this estate in Rochester was one of those. But it wasn't. And even if the king had granted the lands as a temporary reward for his loyal servant, as was common at the time... No one had let Rochester know. And as such, the bishop likely thought the religious lands were being despoiled by the king. And had this been someone like King Edgar, he might have just shrugged and accepted his lot in life. But this wasn't King Edgar. This was Edgar's 18-year-old kid. A kid who had only risen to power because his brother had been murdered, and who had been using that power to run the country into the ground with his little bro-friends. F*** this kid. So Bishop Elfstan handled his business in classic medieval bishop fashion. He got a posse together and quote, shamefully evicted the man together with his people, end quote. Which suggests that the Thane and his supporters were tossed out by force and got their asses kicked a little bit in the process. Now I imagine that at some point, the Thane protested and said the King had given the estate to him. But even if the Thane was telling the truth about the King's grant, Those lands weren't the kings to give away. They belonged to God, or more specifically, to Bishop Elfstan. And they couldn't just be taken away because a teenager wanted to impress his friends. So the beatdown continued. But eventually, the thane, freshly evicted, limped back to court. And he did exactly what you would expect him to do. He tattled on Bishop Elfstan. And here's the thing about this conflict. Bishop Elfstan wasn't just anyone. He appears to have been linked to the king's former chief counsellor, Bishop Athelwald. So just like Elfritz chilled, he represented the old order, an order that very well might have challenged the rising power of the king's new inner circle. The request that the king's retainer had made for those lands in particular very well might have been a deliberate attempt to wrest some of Rochester's power away and transfer it to the king's new faction. Personally, I think that's exactly what happened. But regardless of their motivations, what followed was an unambiguous challenge to their power. They had tried to grab lands and were rebuffed forcefully. And that's bad because to date, Athelred's actions all appear to have been efforts at securing and strengthening his position. And that suggests that he knew exactly how tenuous his hold was. And by roughing up a king's thane, this bishop was openly challenging the king's power. And were Athelred not an inexperienced, politically weak, and insecure leader, he might have tried to resolve this issue diplomatically. But to be honest, if Athelred wasn't an inexperienced, weak, and inexperienced leader, I doubt he would have been in this position in the first place. And so, the inevitable happened. When the Thane returned to Athelred's hall and told him of how he'd been treated, the king went ballistic. He didn't summon the bishop. He didn't call a council to discuss legal remedies. He didn't send in his reeve. He didn't do any of that. Instead, he called the Furd. The king was going to war against his own people in his own lands. And as Athelred and his forces advanced on Rochester, Bishop Alstan did what any sane person would do in that situation. He legged it. But just because Alfstan wasn't home didn't mean that Athelred was going to slow down. He was pissed. And so the king and his army went totally sick house on the bishop's lands. Few things are as dangerous as a weak man who's trying to prove he's tough. And so we're told the whole diocese was laid waste. And looking at the archaeological record, this appears to have been exactly as bad as it sounds. We see signs of a major disruption in activity in the region. And this ravaging was actually so severe that even the mint of Rochester shut down for a time and stopped producing coins. Sulkard, writing of the king's anger during the attack, said, quote, the king used to also say that if he could have laid his hands on the bishop, he would have punished him with much disgrace, end quote. And I don't know what punishing someone with much disgrace is, but I'm pretty sure it would have been more than a stern talking to. Luckily for Bishop Elfstan, though, the king failed to get his hands on him, so he survived the exchange. But he appears to have been booted out of court because he also disappears from the charters for several years. And even though the king's failure in the field had managed to save him from his own temper, he still did a tremendous amount of damage. This attack was so bad that even Archbishop Dunstan of Canterbury got involved. He admonished the king for his actions, which, again, was a mistake. This was an insecure, immature ruler, so not exactly the kind of person to take criticism well. And sure enough, we're told that Dunstan's complaints only made Athelred angrier. Also, do you remember those lands that actually started this whole mess? Well, the king seized them. And despite Archbishop Dunstan's complaints, Athelred steadfastly refused to return them to the bishopric so long as Bishop Alfstan lived. Which, it turned out, meant that they would be royal holdings for nearly a decade. This attack was terrible. And it was more than just bad politics. It was also taking time and attention away from the other serious affairs of state. Because the world kept spinning, no matter what feuds the king got himself into. And England already had plenty to deal with before the king went to war in his own backyard. On the same year that Athelred laid waste to Rochester, England was in the grip of what the Chronicle calls the Great Murren. A murren is a crop blight, or an infectious disease that kills livestock, usually cattle. So England was in a farming crisis at this point, which means it was facing off with a massive famine. Moreover, this entry states that this was the year that the Murren first occurred. So this was actually an ongoing food crisis. And the obvious implications of starvation aside, food was also still the backbone of the entire English economy. England was in crisis. And that was just what was happening inside the borders. Across the Welsh border, the Kingdom of Gwynedd was in disarray. As you might remember, King Hul of Gwynedd, the ally of Mercia, had been killed by the English at roughly the same time as Mercia's elderman, Elfrich Child, had been exiled by Athelred and his court. Which is suspicious timing, if you ask me. And, as you might imagine, the murder of their king tossed the powerful kingdom of Gwyneth into chaos. King Huw's younger brother, Capwathlin, did his best to hold the region together, but he wasn't as fierce as Huw, and things were quickly falling apart. And across their border, in their rival Welsh kingdom of Dehybarth, King ap Appawain realized that he had quite an opportunity on his hands. So he moved on Gwynedd, annexed it, and brought almost all of Wales under his control in the process. So now King Maraduth was the supreme power in the West. And as a sign of his dominance, he immediately raided the lands that were bordering with his new property in Powys, which meant that he was raiding English lands in Mercia. And who was gonna stop him? At this point, the English king was busy hunting one of his bishops. He was busy. So King Meredith and his army had a great time. Meanwhile, across the North Sea, Swain Forkbeard was hard at work. And by this point in the story, he defeated his rivals, driven his father, Harold Bluetooth, into exile, and was now reigning as King Swain of Denmark and Norway. Denmark was fully established as the dominant power in Scandinavia. And just because we're not hearing about Viking raids doesn't mean that they weren't happening. They were still a very real threat, and there were Viking bases in Ireland, the Isle of Man, and the Hebrides, all of which were dangerously close to English lands. Furthermore, we also know that they were raiding during this period in Anglesey, Devon, Pembrokeshire, and all along the Irish Sea. So it's entirely reasonable to presume that there were also raids, beyond just the Welsh raids of Mercia, that could have hit Cumbria, Cheshire, Cornwall, and many of the other coastal regions, and those raids were simply going unrecorded. And we know for a fact that the English accounts were leaving raids out of their chronicle during this period because we only know about those Welsh raids of Mercia from the Welsh records. And that makes you wonder what else the English were leaving out, considering how many Viking fleets were nearby. They might've come to the point where they're just trading raids as a fact of life, and they'd only record the raids if they were big enough. It's hard to know for sure, But just from these accounts, we know that English lands were being raided by the Welsh, that English lands were also being raided by, of all people, the English, that blights and famine were widespread, and to top it off, there were numerous Scandinavian raiding fleets active in the region. The country was in crisis, and the upper echelons were in the grip of a corrupt, self-interested nobility, and England was starting to collapse under the weight of it all. And that issue is made all the worse by the fact that nearby nations were hard at work consolidating their own power. So England was falling behind. And right on cue, in the following year of 987, Hugh the Great's son, Hugh Capat, became the king of the Franks, thus launching the incredibly influential Capetian dynasty. And while that was happening, in England, a member of the king's favored circle, Thane Athelsiga, decided that he really wanted the lands of Bromley. And so King Athelred made that request his top priority. The kingdom was burning and Athelred and his inner circle were responding to it by cashing in. And like I said, given the extreme downward pressure of Anglo-Saxon society, I'm not all that surprised that this happened as soon as we had a weak, insecure king on the throne. It was a perfect storm. But while it's understandable, Imagine how Archbishop Dunstan must have felt when he saw it all play out. Dunstan had known Athelred since he was a child. He anointed the boy at his coronation, and he walked him through his oaths of office. Oaths that Dunstan wrote himself. And yet under Athelred's reign, justice wasn't being meted out as promised. The kingdom wasn't being held in peace. And as for robbery, rather than forbidding it the king and his friends had elevated it to a national pastime. I cannot imagine the disappointment that Dunstan must have felt. And it looks like the stress of it all began to take its toll. Because on May 19th of 988, Archbishop Dunstan died. And with his death, the king lost yet one more link to the past. The figures who had risen to power during the reign of King Edgar were now reaching the end of their lives. These were people with decades of experience at shepherding the kingdom, and yet in many cases, they were being replaced by apparent neophytes who appear to have been motivated solely by their own self-interest. Society can survive a chaotic period of reform, and to be honest, clipping the wings of the entrenched aristocratic dynasties wasn't a terrible idea. But if you're going to reform a system, you have to have something better to replace it with. And kleptocracy isn't it? Thank God it's Friday night. And I just, just, just got paid. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And we have a lot of other communities you can join. And you can find links to all of them in the Communities tab of the British History Thanks for listening.